Welcome to What? It is your part documentary, part roundtable podcast with just a sprinkling of competition. I'm your host, Ellie Main, and joining me, as I have every week, is my good friend, Chelsea Harfouche. Chelsea, how are you? Uh, it's not how am I, it's where am I? Where are you? Tell me. Okay, let me see if I can give you a hint. Uh-huh. There is, uh, I think, three different pairs of Doc Martens. Okay. There is an Edward Scissorhands poster on the wall. <laughs> there is just a random tray covered in nail polish. Mm. There is uh, several rookie yearbooks and also regular yearbooks. There is a disposable <laughs> camera. There... Are you at Millie's? <laughs> no, but you're very close. I am simply in a teenager's bedroom. Yeah, okay. Teenager, <laughs> a teenager's bedroom. You're in Dallas. Yeah. Yeah, I'm in Dallas. I so, see, I see. really fun. Yeah, super fun. And also the subject of my fact bang, although I think I have said it on the podcast before, but now it's just never been more uh, topical. Okay. I'm in Dallas because this week my aunt and uncle underwent kidney transplant surgery. So my uncle Whoa. gave his wife, my aunt, his one of his kidneys. So now he simply has one kidney and she has three kidneys. Because my first fact bang is that when they give somebody... When you get a kidney donation, they don't remove your bad kidneys. They just plop the good kidney like in there next to it. So then really? so my aunt now has three kidneys. Yeah. Because it's just like, it's just an unnecessary risk of like cutting all those like vessels and stuff. So they just attach wow. the good kidney they like plug in the good kidney and then they're like, well, you bad ones just like continue to do nothing. Like you're doing amazing. Right. You're giving us nothing. Great. This kidney sure isn't working. So we'll right. just leave him to it. So they just plug in the good kidney. So now she has three kidneys. He has one kidney. You may be wondering, Chelsea, why didn't you give your kidney? In which I, case I say, none of your business. But the <laughs> other reason is because <laughs> it oh, turns yeah, you out. Ask me that. <laughs> yeah, that's an incredibly inappropriate thing to ask somebody. That's my family member. Of course, I would do anything to save her, but I didn't have to because your best bet when it comes to like a live organ donation like that is actually your long-term partner if you have a long-term partner. It is even it is an even better histological, which is like the term that they use. It's a better match than even like your family members, like your close family members. So <laughs> Kevin, yeah, Kevin, despite being obviously not related to, to Lisa <laughs> um, at all, is actually her best match histologically um, to prevent like a, a rejection because they have been swapping fluids. And I don't want to get any more specific that, than that. That's my right. family. Stop yep. being gross. But they've been swapping fluids. <laughs> for like almost 30 years so their immune systems have like melded basically so her body recognizes his immune system more strongly than it would recognize even a close fat like a like a relative like a sibling right that's so so weird that's so cool so i would say i think it's so romantic and like actually even my friend (laughs) susanna her sister gave her husband a kidney a few years ago and it was the same thing even though it's like husband and wife and not like blood relatives she was the best match because they had been together for 20 years. That's so cool. Yeah. So those are my fact bangs. That is why I'm simply in a teenager's bedroom because my cousin, who's 16 <laughs> and very cool, uh-huh. uh, is letting me use her bedroom to record right now. And I'm that like, oh, this is like a fun little snapshot of like, this is what it's like to be 16 in like 2021. It's like, yeah, I like Edward Scissorhands. I like the classics. And it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I love that. Yeah, it's really strong. I had something of a reverse fact bang situation. And let me tell you what that means. A fact question? (laughs) Are you going to tell us something you don't know? (laughs) No, it's something that I planned to talk about as a fact bang, which then became its own what topic. Oh my. I I see what you mean about reverse now. Is it a first? It might just be. It might just be. It might just be. And obviously I can't talk about what it is because it would be a spoiler. But yeah, it was one of the situations I was like, I'm just going to talk about this for a second and then I was like, how deep the rabbit hole goes. Here's a real question. Yeah. And I post this not just to you, but to everybody who listens to this podcast. Okay. Please at me. Have you watched Squid Game yet? No. Oh my God. Everybody keeps telling me that I must. I know. I did see a tweet that was just like, I have been peer pressured to watch Squid Game more than I've ever been peer pressured to do drugs in my whole life. (laughs) Uh, 
Well, let me add to the peer pressure. It's so good. Connor and I binged it in like two days. We laughed. We ugly cried together. Oh, man. Which was like a really cute moment in our relationship. Like, Connor's cried in front of me and I definitely cry like every day. But like, this was like a different level. This was like us both like sobbing from one of the episodes. I mean, like I've been squid pilled. I'm squid pilled now. (laughs) Team squid. It's so good. Yeah. No spoilers, but you do not want to be on the side of the squid in this situation. (laughs) Uh, But you'll see. But you'll see. You'll see. It'll be great. Oh, oh, beans. (laughs) Do you want to, as a way of like transitioning from fact bang to um, like into mini game, do you want to tell the title of your topic? Well, here's the thing, Chelsea. (gasps) Oh, no. I do have a title of my topic, don't you worry. But okay, I, I was did right. it. I you do? added up the score. <gasps> the score? I the score. I did it today. Okay. I I have the up to date scores. <laughs> do you want to share and them now? I think I should share them now. You can share them now. Okay. Coming in third with a hundred points is Connor. <laughs> <laughs> Given, given to himself. <laughs> Coming in second with 973 is Chelsea. And no. I am... I'm at 1,014. 970 and 1,014? Yes, there's about 40 40 in it right now. That's that's horrendous. (laughs) Well, it just means that you have to get some more biased guests for the rest of the season. That's true. I'm going to have to start booking. I'm going to have to start booking. Okay. Well, that just lit a fire under me, so I'm excited. Okay, well then, in that case, what's the title of your topic? The title of my topic is... that with like actual spooky music if you want but like that's like a spooky music cut in to be like spook news this is our first episode of spooky season aka october so don't you think that i haven't thought about that oh i'm sure you i don't think this is new information to you just to be clear (laughs) but like what the day it is yeah it is more of like a performance like a performance aspect um like spook news (laughs) it's spooktober y'all and that means every topic i will bring to the podcast this month will be like spooky adjacent love that like it will be spooky. like within the themes of spooktober so like <laughs> this week's topic isn't necessarily scary although there's like a little bit of a scary part but it is like spook adjacent so like that's a clue <laughs> and then the title spook of my topic adjacent. is spook adjacent and then the title of my topic is pennsylvania powwow pennsylvania powwow what creepy ass shit happened in pennsylvania well what hasn't <laughs> I mean, I've I got to be honest. I don't know if I know that much about Pennsylvania. Um, Yeah, that's fair. I don't, I also don't know. Like, I know that Philadelphia is there. I okay. know that it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Is also you know, there. <laughs> is also there. I know that my friend Susanna moved to Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. What else is in Pennsylvania? Oh, Scranton, the city that the office took place in, <gasps> also wow. in Pennsylvania. There Very might be famous. like a, I think that's also where the Liberty Bell is. But to be honest, I sometimes mix up some of the historical stuff about Pennsylvania with the historical with stuff about Boston. Boston. Yeah. yeah. I, I, so the bell could the, be in either one. Both Chelsea and I's knowledge the bell could be in either Pennsylvania as a state or Boston the city. Yeah. Okay, I mean, they're close to each other relatively. I will say that's something that really grinded, that really ground my gears, if you will. Sure. Um, yeah. Because you know how like living in Austin, if we want to go anywhere, like you we're can't. talking hours. Yeah. No, just like, like us. Us Austin. We're talking yeah, hours, at minimum like five hours to leave the state, like in any direction, and then getting uh, somewhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was looking at like what it would look like if we wanted to do a road trip, like in the like northeast, because you know, like leaves and shit. Um, I want to sure. see some bridges. I want to see a covered bridge. I would just like to see one. And so me a I was disused like, railway bridge. So I was like, oh, well, it would be kind of cool to like I don't know, like go to New York and then maybe like drive to Boston and then maybe like drive up to like you know like vermont or something and i was like no that's crazy that's like five states like there's just like we're not gonna be able to do that and i looked and like motherfucker (laughs) you could cross like seven states in three hours i was so pissed i was like all of these places are like two hours away from each other you can go to like philadelphia to new york to boston to like up to connecticut to maine and like each part of it is only like two hours whereas here it's like four hours to dallas yeah meanwhile (laughs) i listened to like five podcasts just to get from my house to my aunt's house yesterday <laughs> oh man okay sorry remind me of the precise so title pennsylvania again. powwow <laughs> 
Pennsylvania powwow. So who, what is spooky? Is there like a spooky witch kind of thing that happens? Like they all meet in Pennsylvania? You're getting warmer. Oh my. Okay. You are um, getting warmer. Powwow. So it's a spooky gathering. No, that wasn't the part that was warm. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> I kind of want to wait and see. Oh, you'll see. Oh, oh my gosh. <laughs> you'll see. Do you want to tell me the title of your topic? Yes. So I too have adopted a Spookums theme. And yes. Actually, almost kind of um, inspired by listening to hear, like fractions of many episodes of our show today. <laughs> I decided that I wanted to do this topic because I have always found this fascinating, even as a wee chiddler. So it's one of those. It's one of those. So get get ready. And it I is see, called The Life of Marie Groschultz. Oh, Mary Sorry. G. Oh, Mary G. Life uh, of Mary G. Marie G. The Life of Mary G. Well, I don't know who that is. So... I'm excited. I guess like my my hints, since I don't know who she is, um, are that it's spooky or spooky adjacent and that it's something that you've been like fascinated by. I feel like your language there was like fascinated since you were like a wee child. Knowing yes. you, I wonder if potentially it's like an exorcism thing or like a demon thing. Ooh. Um, <laughs> is it a strikeout? There is a very small element of that to it. Uh-huh. I will give you a hint because I did. I, yeah, I went a bit, I went a bit, uh, got a bit confident on the title. I'll give you a clue that it, <laughs> this is about an attraction. Oh, an attraction. An attraction. Okay. And say it again. The life of Marie Groschultz. Ooh. <laughs> I have no idea, but I'm so excited. Then I will simply start us off with a Pennsylvania powwow. Are you ready? I am so ready. Okay. I'm I'm excited because I, I think that you're going to like really dig this. I feel like <laughs> my prediction is that you're going to want to learn more about this like after this episode. Like I, you um, know, like I'm not so vain as to think that like everything that I bring to this podcast, you're like, oh my God, I've got to like dig in on this. But I think this might be Little one. do you know. <laughs> <laughs> It has since it has hence been my Monday morning activity from five to seven AM. Hell yeah. Um, okay. So Pennsylvania Powell. If you were if you were to take that road trip that I was describing earlier, uh, if you wanted to take miles to see like a covered bridge, which I for the record yeah. I think he would get a kick out of. Yeah, I mean, might... I really think he'd like that. Oh well maybe we can like since you know my partner doesn't drive, maybe I can selfishly say, like, what if we all got a Winnebago? I'm getting off topic, <laughs> but like keep that in your back. Boys to Bridges tour 2022. The Boys to Bridges tour with us. <laughs> Just go ahead and put that one in your back pocket for now. And then <laughs> let me get back into this. If we were to do that, we might pass on these like idyllic country roads in Pennsylvania. Amish or Mennonite or Lutheran farms and barns that are painted with strange symbols. Sometimes Ooh. it's like stars and crosses and X's and runes. Sometimes Spooky. it's like very vividly colored animals like birds. And you might think that it is purely decorative or maybe it has like crows or afraid of stars, like, but it's not. They are actually the hex symbols of the Pennsylvania Dutch. And I do want you to t- <laughs> I do want to tell you the looking at my nose right now. I spelled Pennsylvania in maybe the most like deranged way possible. Like <laughs> I don't know what me. I was doing. It's like <laughs> I spelled it like Pennsylvania, like P N E S S Y, like almost like like I was trying Penne, to spell like pussy, pasta? like oh. like Penessi. Like can you do that to my Penessi? Like Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is what I've written. So it's the hex symbols of the Pennsylvania Dutch. <laughs> um, and more specifically, they are the symbols associated with maybe alongside, I mean, you could say potentially alongside like um, some like folklore of the South, but even that has its own story. It's maybe the most uniquely American system of magic and it's called powwow. It's all, it's a, uh, yeah. So like, the, this is why I was so fascinated by this is that, you know, like, we've about this 
this many times on the podcast, it is like a recurring theme. It's maybe not at the level of Titanic, but like it, it comes up a lot. <laughs> like, yeah, America is such a young country relative to other countries, most other countries. And, you know, sometimes like there are like I have such a fascination with like generally like magical systems, like rituals, like, you know, history. Um, and it sometimes can be a bit of a bummer that like most of our history is like 200 years old uh, and it's all about colonialism. <laughs> and you're like, yeah. great. Uh, we're all having a lot of fun. It's more yeah. about colonists systematically destroying like existing older rituals or systems of belief as opposed to like preserving them, which I think is maybe like the tragedy that, that uh-huh. I just get to. And so this isn't necessarily the antidote to that, but it is maybe the first time that I have ever read other than like reading about things like voodoo, like I was saying, like in the South, although I would say that voodoo, because voodoo expands outside of the South, like outside mm-hmm. of America, it's, you know, like in like Haiti and like the Caribbean and stuff like that. I don't think that that counts in the same way. Whereas this is like a magical system that was like born in America. And it's part of the Pennsylvania Dutch tradition, which if you're not familiar, uh, super complicated. It's Dutch people who live in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Um, okay. Yeah. But, I mean, like, you know, when you talk about like the Amish and stuff, like uh, there was like sort of like a, there's like a micro group, I guess, of um, Dutch, like, you know, like this sort of like American mythos of like the original colonists being like religious pilgrims or like religious defectors who didn't mm-hmm. like what was going on in Europe. So they came to America to practice like religious freedom, uh, which like in some ways is like a complicated truth. But in, but in the case of the Pennsylvania Dutch, it's like absolutely true. Like, they were Amish, they were Mennonites, they were Lutherans, and they were Anabaptists. Uh, and mm-hmm. those were all people who were like, hey, everything that's going on in Germany and like Holland right now is fucking against God, it is absolutely Satan, it is demons. Uh, and I will I will risk my life on a boat in the <laughs> 1600s to just to get away from this and like start over. So they come to America. I think everybody kind of knows that like pilgrim life in America was fucking brutal. And, uh, you know, it was really difficult to survive. And they started to develop basically their own magical systems of spells and rituals and incantations that were primarily associated with healing the sick, um, Uh healing animals or livestock and finding water, which if you think about like being a pilgrim in the 1600s, those are really going to be at the top of your pyramid. Those are going to be the things you're really looking for. Yeah. Yeah. But here is where I think it gets really interesting or where I think like maybe like like a very specific like Ellie interest is going to like push it over the top. (laughs) Pennsylvania powwow is at its heart considered a uh, Christian practice, which many people outside of powwow find really confusing because especially like when you think about really sort of like lowercase C conservative Christianity, like the Mennonites or Uh like the like early Lutherans, you would think that the last thing that they would want to like associate with is magic. Um, Like if you think about the movie, the witch, right? Like those were supposed to be like 1600s pilgrims and they were like any, anything related to witchcraft, you know, we're going to not be a part of. We don't love it. No, not big fans, not big fans. (laughs) However, this is like, to me, like this is such an interesting example of how, I don't know, like how human imagination or like human, um, the human brain can Mm -hmm. kind of like work around these things based on like what they, like their own wants or needs. So the book, the first and foremost, like the, the grimoire, as it were, like where they got their spells and incantations was the Bible, the King James Bible. And okay. first I was like, what? And then I was like, you know, actually, I do remember not really in the New Testament, but especially in the Old Testament, there is a lot of talk of like ritual work. There's like, oh, yeah, you know, like ceremonies the woman. And- yeah, weird like folk remedies and like, you know, like, or even some that are like a little bit spookier. Like, this isn't part of powwow, but like something that I always think about is like, I remember reading, um, it was probably in Leviticus because I feel like it had like a real judgy vibe, but there was like, I remember reading <laughs> yeah. a passage in the Bible once when I was a kid that was like if you think your wife is cheating on you like take her down to like the church and put yeast on her belly and if her belly swells then she's cheating on you and you can she's an adulteress and you can you know do what you do with adulteresses but if it doesn't swell then uh you're wrong and um and i was like oh bad day to have like uh like yeast sensitivity 
many. <laughs> like, oh gosh, yeah. Bad day to have had like just a lot of bread the day before. Right, exactly. So <laughs> I so I was like, okay, so maybe it's like those kinds of things that they're taking that they're taking incantations from. And that is mm-hmm. sort of true. The other part of it is like they will take like a Bible verse that is maybe more direct. Like you know how like some Bible verses are some Bible verses are like stories, right? It's like telling you yeah. like a, a history or a chronology of like something that happened. And then some yeah. of them are much more kind of like the word of God esque where it's like, and do this and this shall happen. And if you do X, then you shall have Y and like that kind of stuff. So they'll take yeah. some of those and then transform them into like incantations. Like one example, it's a very famous example of powwow, um, which they say is so powerful that you don't have to be a practitioner of powwow to use it mm-hmm. is a healing <laughs> spell that's um, from Ezekiel 16, six. And so they still use like the King James version and it's, uh, mm-hmm. and when I passed by thee and saw thee polluted in thine own blood, I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live, yea. I said unto thee, when thou wast in thy blood, live. And like, if you believe like in powwow, that is a spell that you can say over a person who is sick and help to heal them. Okay. So that's kind of like the really fascinating, that's like kind of like an example of like how they are using Christian words, Christian beliefs. They use a lot of Christian symbology in their like, their spell work. And I think that is a big part of also of how they, you know, like, again, like they were like, this isn't witchcraft. This isn't Satan stuff. This is me being a mediator between God and the sick person or the sick animal. Like mm-hmm. God wants us to live because we're good Christians. And so therefore, like, I'm going to interpret the word of God in such a way as to heal this person. Like that was sort of like the, the thought process behind, yeah. I think, using the Bible for it. So other than the Bible, the second most common book used in powwow practices is, uh, and I absolutely want to find this book because if not just to like, I just want to interact with it. I just want to see it. It's called The Long Lost Friend. It's from the 19th century. When you look at pictures from like the old versions of this book, uh, it's absolute. It's so cool. It what looks, is it? It's like the equivalent of like a grimoire, which would be like a magical like encyclopedia. Here, I'm going to send right. a picture a picture from the book to our Discord patron chat. There we go. Um, but it absolutely looks like a magical like grimoire, Whoa. like full of yeah information. So The Long Lost Friend is like, it's like a grimoire, so it has recipes, it has spells, it has procedures and incantations. Um, and it basically tells you how to use the supernatural power of God to, you know, heal the sick, find water. Mm-hmm. It was written by a man named Homan in 1802. He was a German immigrant. He was himself a healer, a powwow healer. And he combined basically all sorts of different books, including a book on like Egyptian magic and the Bible and like um, a lot of like oral sources about like that have been passed down from powwow, put them all in one book. Mm-hmm. He also claimed that the book itself could serve as an amulet of protection for its possessor. He also said that uh, if you destroy the book, you can use like the destruction of the book to lift a hex placed on someone else if they owned that book. So like if I had a copy of The Long Lost Friend and I hexed you and you destroyed my Long Lost Friend book, it would lift the hex off you. Okay, cool. Okay. (laughs) Homan himself was kind of like a mysterious and controversial figure because as you can imagine, like, like with any kind of like historical thing like this, the feelings about powwow were not universal. Like it does seem like most like Pennsylvania Dutch communities in like the 18th and 19th centuries had powwow practitioners who were part of the community, but there were definitely a ton of people who were like, Satan is this tricky. He has tricked you into thinking you are doing a Christian witchcraft, but you're just doing regular witchcraft. This is bad. And so for that reason, Homan, as somebody who like literally wrote the book for this, this craft, this practice, it was super, super controversial in the Whoa. Pennsylvania Dutch communities, which then of course, like has maybe retroactively, if we're being honest, imbued the book with even more kind of like mystique, right? Of just like, sure. Yeah, this, absolutely. This mysterious occult wrote this book in 1802 so we said yeah the bible and then the long lost 
Friend is the next like most important book. And then a third book, kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, that's often used in powwow or like allegedly used in powwow, but is like super controversial. And this is where we're going to have like kind of like our like actual scary part of the story. I think this story is mostly like not scary. It's just spook adjacent because it's about magic. Uh huh. But this I think is actually kind of spooky. It's called the sixth and seventh books of Moses. And so the idea of it is that that the five books of Moses are in like the Torah and the Bible. But this is like an esoteric like document that's the sixth and seventh books of Moses. The the lost books. But unlike obviously the Bible and even the long lost friend, the sixth and seventh books of Moses actually go further in like the spells that it describes, including spells about how to conjure spirits. And that is like a hard limit for almost all powwow practitioners where they're like, oh, if you are bringing in spirits, you are bringing in demons. Like there's just no way to do that in a way that is compatible with Christian Yep. yeah and so it's it's real like if you were to ever like you know go and actually try to you know research this or, or talk to powwow practitioners today almost no one would admit to owning it and it would be very very controversial to even bring it up uh one powwow practitioner that um that was spoken to for like the document that i got a lot of this information from which is basically a thesis written by or like a, a what's it called when it's your doctor like your doctorate your dissertation um, it's a dissertation yeah. written by a man named David W. Kreeble who spent like, like this is what he like studied for his PhD was powwow. And so he obviously went and interviewed a lot of like modern day practitioners. And he said that one of the women that he spoke to recalled that when she was a little girl in the 30s, her neighbor had a copy of the sixth and seventh books of Moses and loaned it to her. And when her grandmother found out that she had it, she angrily returned it and said like, never speak to my granddaughter again. Um, Yeah. Other, other Pennsylvania Dutch in the region said that they are so super, they feel so strongly about the book that they won't even touch it. Wow. The quote from the, the woman who is also an amateur historian of powwow. She said, I've never read the Moses book. Frankly, I'm superstition, superstitious enough that I will not touch it. And I don't consider myself superstitious, but I do consider that there are powers on this earth that I don't understand. And I'm not going to mess with something that I figure I'm too ignorant to mess with. Whoa. And the whole idea being that this sixth, sixth and seventh book were actually uh, like this sort of secret demonology that was happening yeah so it's yeah so like say if you were going to if you were going to make powwow analogous to kind of like the more like i guess general witchcraft that we're all familiar with there's like Mm -hmm. white magic and there's dark magic right Uh uh-huh okay and so even like modern day witches might be like well i'm like a white witch like i would never do black magic if you were to like put that kind of paradigm on powwow then the long lost friend is white magic and the sixth and seventh books of Moses contain dark magic and hexes. Uh, and that is why most powwow practitioners won't mess with that book or they won't, if they have it, they won't admit to having it. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. That is so spooky. That, that feels like something from a TV show, but it's real. Well, that's what I'm saying is like, it's just really, I am like completely freaked out to have found out about like a magical system that basically, and because again, in case you were curious, like the reason why it's called powwowing, because you've probably only heard the term powwow in conjunction Junction with like indigenous people it is a loan word from the Algonquin tribe which was like the tribe that was most in that area in that region of the United States at the time so you know in ways yeah. that like probably like politically like we are too ignorant to get into like they heard that word and they maybe felt like you know there was some kinship there with the indigenous people and the rituals that they at least perceived that they were doing and so right. they're like oh yeah so they took that for themselves that's why it's called powwow which is not obviously a Dutch word. It's an Algonquin word. This practice has developed over the centuries to combine like traditional... Oh, because we haven't even gotten into this. Okay, Ellie, as an as like our resident European, have yeah. you ever heard of the Have you ever heard of the cunning folk? No. So the cunning folk. This is like this is the um, roots of powwow. So like I said, powwow is an American practice, but it didn't it didn't just start like in a vacuum out of nowhere. Once they came to America, there right. are there is like a history of you know it might also be called low magic um, in Europe, especially in like England and Wales and then up into Northern Europe and and over like closer to like Holland and stuff. Um, It's started in like the later part of the medieval and then kind of like moved into like the 15th and 16th centuries, basically until like the 16th century, like 1500s when uh, everyone got real freaky about witchcraft. (laughs) 
But before that, from like the 1100s or maybe even earlier up until like the 1500s, almost every village had a cunning woman or a cunning man. And that was essentially like a folk healer or a ritual healer who would use magic that at that time socially was not considered to be separate from or in conflict with Christianity. Mm-hmm. That they would, you know, use like, you know, herbs and, and alchemy and tonics and potions and everything like that, you know, to do just sort of like basic like field medicine for villages, uh-huh. right? Because like this is like pre-hospitals or anything like that. So you would have like a healer. This is also where the term white witch comes from. Although like it's historians say that it's very unlikely, like the white witch was probably a way that like other people would talk about this woman, but that it was very rare on like that she would call herself that because witch still absolutely meant like somebody in league with the devil right which nobody was going to you know cop to at that time it was me yeah so like this is like another example of like how like you know we have like a real idea of how people in the past related to magic as being like oh well like people were more like generally more religious in the past and therefore like anything that was related to magic they were like deeply suspicious or like outright hostile to but it was more complicated than that they were absolutely outright hostile to anything that had to do with the devil you at the very same time they'd be like oh, well, like, that's, that's not a witch. That's my cunning woman. That's, that's just my cunning lass. Like, Come she's, on, guys. No, she's great. She helped, like, she helped my husband find a, a spot to dig a well. She, like, reads my cards. She, you know, she made a potion for my kid because his she's tummy was witch. messed up. That's not a witch. That's a cunning woman. What are you talking about? <laughs> Y'all look crazy. So that's, like, the cunning folk are the predecessors to the powwowers of America. I they see. brought over all of, like, these early European Christian magical beliefs, then those combined with both each other and indigenous practices from the Algonquins, and then sort of like evolved over time based on the specific needs of the pilgrims. Yeah. Or like, for example, like, um, you know, something that maybe is like the most common thing that somebody might have like encountered that's like uh, from powwow magic is water divining. If you've ever seen like yeah, a divining rod. Yeah, little like, yeah, there's little rods that you're supposed to move around. Yeah. And then it like twitches or whatever if you get close to yeah. water. That's powwow magic because oh. it was real super important for them to find water. <laughs> so <laughs> it grew up around that practice that like the trees that were best, the wood that was best for water divining happened to be like elm and you and like things that were like plentiful in that part of like Pennsylvania at the time and probably mm-hmm. also still now. So that is, um, that's a kind of like an overview of like how it developed. And then we talked about like a couple examples of powwow magic. Um, I thought I would share a couple more examples uh, before, yeah. we, before we close out um, that I think are, are, you know, just fascinating. So if you want to like bind your dog to you, like if you want Chip to start like spending like more time with you, because I know like yeah. you feel like Chip doesn't, like he's not oh. like close like physically close enough yeah, to you all the time he's never physically close against me all the time yeah yeah so if you want that to be more then during your next meal gather up all the scraps from the table mm-hmm. then like maybe like spill throughout the meal but you have to use the same utensils that you used to eat the meal and you okay. gather all that up and then you feed it to him with a little bit of your blood oh just that you're just gonna it's <laughs> gonna skate past that part real part no real it, it's, it's not a big deal at least you're gonna get all it's... that food and you like do the scraps and everything like that and then just like a little bit of your blood and and just a and little then, bit of blood. And you feed that to Woo! Chip and you do that for three consecutive days. You do it oh, three perfect. times a day for three days consecutively. Okay. And then uh, <laughs> Chip will simply like never leave your side. Great. Uh, another thing that you can do is um, if someone, this is important, I think also, if someone is yeah. gossiping about you, if you hear that like uh-huh. somebody's talking shit, yeah. you turn your shirt inside out, then take both of your thumbs starting at your heart and bring them down to your thighs three times and then put like- your shirt shirt on uh the right way what does that do that stops them from gossiping about you how magic i don't know that sounds like the beginning of a movie where it's like this teenager accidentally killed all her friends <laughs> by doing a spooky <laughs> well, little spell no um, <laughs> i thought this was kind of like a sweet place to end um it was from another one of my sources where they said in looking at powwow magical tradition one notices the importance placed on showing kindness to others compassion yeah. for the powwow witch is a way of life from their perspective god is helpful and that is an important example to follow. This is why hex witchery is focused so much on healing, the ability to improve life's quality for others. So it's, I mean, like, look, like, you know, everybody gets to make their own opinions about like whether mag- 
magic is real, whether like, um, you know, magic can be compatible with Christianity or not. I do think it's sweet that there are just a bunch of people in Pennsylvania who will find water for you and uh, and like read the read the Bible at you very loud and, and heal you. <laughs> Um, I think maybe some important things to kind of close out about like modern day powwow. It's it's become like increasingly rare as most of these sorts of like folkloric practices do. So yeah. um, there are a lot of Pennsylvania Dutch who haven't even heard of powwow. So like don't just assume that everyone in that region knows about it. It's right. um, people who are still practicing. They're mostly, you know, practicing like through oral tradition, like passed down in families. So one family will be like the powwow, you know, man or powwow woman of a community. Uh-huh. Um, and it passes down that way, which I do think like that's increasingly rare in in our time so it's really fascinating to me um and it is also a a closed practice they're not looking for new people to practice powwow so also keep that in mind (laughs) it's not for like what i'm thinking i'm gonna sign up yeah it's not for tiktok okay cool in other words (laughs) but that is pennsylvania powwow well i'm excited to give you your points at the end oh my god i I know about to talk about the life of Marie Groschultz and if you don't know who that is you are going to know extremely soon few people know about the unapologetic sensationalism of Victorian popular culture better than Marie Groschultz who's probably better known as Madame Tussaud (laughs) (laughs) yes we are talking about the Madame Tussaud uh, and this is why I said I this is known something that, that I've been fascinated by name. since I was a little girl because Madame Tussauds is one of the most famous tourist attractions in London to this day. And it mm-hmm. is a really creepy room full of wax lookalikes of celebrities. What are you talking but about? They a, don't look regular? They, You know what? Some of them look pretty good and some of them look so wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> so deeply wrong. Yeah. But I wanted to dig into a little bit about who Madame Tussaud was as a woman, as a person. So basically, you mean the woman to sow the world? <gasps> oh, that would be a way better title. Balls. It's okay. It happens to all of us. Yeah. So Madame Tussaud, Mary Groschultz, was born to a family line that was actually dotted with public executioners. And okay. Yeah, I know. And she apprenticed to her mother's employer, who was an anatomist who sculpted in wax. So as a young, young Ooh. child, <laughs> Marie Groschultz wasn't the girl like dressed in white lace and taking piano lessons. Instead, she was making death masks from guillotine heads during the French Revolution. Okay, but like, doesn't that absolutely kind of feel like if you were making a movie, it's like the detail that you would include in like <laughs> the like childhood montage? Oh, like yeah. One, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. It was like coming home and then her like mother's employer being like, come, come, I have fresh dead people for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Much of this research was collected by a guy called Edward Carey, who as a journalist, but but used to A, be terrified by Madame Tussauds and then work there. And the article that he has in The Guardian about Madame Tussauds is very funny and very interesting. So I want to open with mm-hmm. like a, little, a little piece of that. He okay, says, cool. some 20 years ago in a free fall from university and picking up odd jobs in London, I spent a few months working at Madame Tussauds. Like countless others, I'd been taken to the Wax Museum as a child and blessed with nightmares from the experience. Guy Fawkes <laughs> crouched by a barrel of gunpowder had terrified me, as had a peculiarly pockmarked waxwork of Hans Christian Andersen. The Chamber of Horrors was certainly upsetting, but not as much as the tableau of the Battle of Trafalgar. This had noise and lights, and you felt like you were standing on the gun deck of the HMS Victory, and there you could almost see him breathing his last was the body, the pale body, of Horatio Nelson. But the greatest waxwork in the Madame Tussauds is that of Tussaud herself, a very small old woman with a large nose and chin dressed in suitably chilling Victorian bombazine stands guard over the rest of the wax populace. There's something mythical about her, as if she were a character from folklore or fairy tale. There's something also a little cockroachy about her too. She feels made up. She feels like a story, but she was a real person. And this waxwork is a self-portrait of the artist and businesswoman who found one of London's most famous and enduring attractions. Cockroachy is just 
an awful way to describe another person. <laughs> it's very Even if it's rude. Like a version of a person. <laughs> it's not kind. And I think that just he's trying to describe just how fucking creeped out this ho- how creepy this whole thing is that this is an ongoing entertainment like industry in a way. It's so wild. Okay, Madame Tussauds herself, Marie. She was born in 1761. Her mother, a widow, was housekeeper to a famous wax maker and anatomist, a guy called Philippe Curtius, Curtius, literally spelled like Curtius, who uh-huh. kind of all but adopted Marie. Like this is kind of an area where rumors abound. It's like, was Curtius her uncle, her father, or a convenient cover for parentage by some unknown person it was like to him marie was this prize pupil and so the kind of nature of his acquisition of her is a bit uh, suspect mm-hmm. and in his wax salon which apparently was a popular thing it's what people did when you died i suppose M- M- madame Tussauds marie would encounter many of paris's most prominent citizens in fact her first sculpture was a likeness of voltaire which is oh. quite the way to start a career. <laughs> yeah. It's like when you want to like show them that you didn't come to play. Yeah, exactly. In the 18th century, Waxworks became popular as a public paid attraction. So that's kind of when they transferred from being more of like, from being a death mask to like, wouldn't this be cool to just go and see? Women, including London's famous Mrs. Salmon, apparently she was fa- London's famous Mrs. Salmon. And I've tried to look <laughs> up more about Mrs. Salmon. I've tried to find mm-hmm. her story. And there's not much to be found apart from just this one sentence, London's famous Mrs. Salmon. So, sure. And we all get that. And we all get it. But, ooh, to link our topics, it was London's famous Mrs. Salmon and Patience Wright from Philadelphia were prominent in the trade of waxworks. They were already in this. Maybe this was because kind of like wax was kind of seen as like a low art form, like a like a lesser medium for making sculptures and stuff. Mm-hmm. Or because male academics and artists satisfied themselves it was like a amateur they, they were like we they decided it was an amateur pursuit. Uh. But for whatever the reason, Marie ran with it and brought along her artistry an iron stomach, social savvy and a liberal definition of educational entertainment, which is kind of also like what we have. Yeah. In a Aww. way, I mean, it's a very different way. <laughs> a well, liberal definition. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. so the French Revolution created this new demand for wax figures. Just so dark. Yeah. This lady, Pamela Pillbeam, has written a book, Madame Tussaud and the History of Waxworks. She said that typically these sculptures that people wanted during the French Revolution were wax heads mounted on sort of costumed mannequin bodies. And they became this kind of real time political commentary for. Parisians at the time, especially oh. in places like where this guy Philippe Curtius operated. And so mm-hmm. it would like often fall to Marie to make these death masks of the revolution's recently decapitated victims because Philippe Curtius would be out participating in the political and military business of it all. So this became kind of her full time job was just to make death masks of recently decapitated, guillotined people. And so sounds right. This week, <laughs> yeah. So this work, it just it's just so wild to me that everyone's like, yeah, sure, this is what this person does. And so, so she gets access to all these insane places. Like she had to have this like equal comfort in being in a palace and being in a prison and obviously an ease with the grotesque. And she does have memoirs written down. So Tussaud claimed that she sat on the steps of the exhibition with the bloody heads on her knees, taking the impressions of their features. So she would just pop down to the local murdatorium where the revolution was doing its thing and be like sorry excuse me and just like grab their heads for a second do a couple sketches um make some impressions of their face pattern and then be like cool peace and everyone was like yeah nice one yeah yeah actually yes so apparently being successful in waxworks it was kind of like it became this thing of like being the first on the scene like i guess like, you know crime scene photographs or something super like i guess like uh, reporters being on the first first of the scene of like a prolific murder of some kind because not only did you have to have the artistic skill and the patience to create a lifelike waxwork of someone you had to have fast feet and your like your ear totally to the ground because you needed to know when like some prolific artist has been murdered quick get over to his place and take a like get a likeness of his face so that you can get the first waxwork like the limited edition only in madame tussauds dead guy so (laughs) 
When Charlotte Corday murdered the radical Jean-Paul Marat in his bathtub, Marie got to the scene so fast that the killer was still being processed by law enforcement when she started working on Marat's death mask. She's just like, she's there like, so sorry, excuse me, just got my got I'm my job gonna, to do. Just gonna, I'm just gonna yeah. come over here and, you know, like, let me know if I'm in the way. Um, yeah, sorry, you guys know, you guys still carry on, you do your thing, I'll just be right here. By 1802, 40-year-old Marie was saddled with a lazy spendthrift husband, two children, and the faltering business that Curtis had left her with on his death. And so she decided, fuck this, I'm going to seek my fortune abroad. And she left her youngest child with her mother and aunt. So it's like, cool. you have, yeah, you have this one. Packed up her son and a duffel bag of disembodied aristocratic head uh, wax heads and left for London to achieve a well-filled purse. She decided she was going off to town to seek her fortune. And she wanted to provide for her son. So she knew that her spendthrift husband would get any money she had returned, any money she had if she returned to France, sorry. And then the Napoleonic Wars made it difficult for her to travel anyway. So she kind of just decided to go all in on this idea, to double down on this uh-huh. kind of hustle. And she found... Yeah, she was a girl boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She was hash- the original hashtag girl boss. She found her uh-huh. footing. She bought out a contract with this guy who was a colleague of the courteous bloke, who she had kind of like been kind of like talking up about her coming to England. And she toured. She toured across England for more than 20 years, establishing her traveling show as a pretty like cultural fixture she was well known to seize quickly upon every trend and fashion and she would make these new models to explore what the bloke who wrote the book Pilbeam called the snobbish glamour of royalty as well as the thrill of being au fait with the latest gruesome murder or assassination so she was like always the first to it and then she had this authenticity on her side because like anyone could make a diorama or an idea of what a scene might look like but only Marie Tussaud could claim she'd taken her cast from the very individuals portrayed. She had famously a waxwork of Marie Antoinette that it was never known whether that was taken for real or not which I think is very cool. She's like so you keep your secrets Marie Tussaud. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah that's um, so spooky. She's spooky. So yeah so as she got older she capitalized on this chance to kind of rein in the travel a bit and tap into this growing promenade market of families with discretionary income who wanted to do stuff in their neighborhood so she settled into a a standing location in london's fashionable baker street getting property in the mid 1830s when she was 70 and she would stand out the front and she would greet guests personally her Baker Street Gallery, it's still in Baker Street, by the way, features a 5,000 square foot grand salon covered in ornate drapery and offering comfortable seating where visitors could take in the sculptures, helpfully flattered by large mirrors on the walls, generally reflecting the figures from every angle. Madame Tussaud knew that the public, then as now, would go nuts for two things, royal fever and horror shows, and she gladly provided immersion in both. Insinuating herself with the upper class, Tussaud grew her popularity to the point where she was able not only to model Europe's elite, but even to to purchase King George IV's coronation robes and Napoleon's own carriage, all the better to ornament displays in the quote-unquote golden chamber. Oh, and then wow. in, I know, yeah, that she 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 was like hot shit. In the early 1840s, Tussaud put together a royal display with Albert sliding the wedding onto Queen Victoria's finger and commissioned, with the Queen's permission, a precise copy of her wedding gown at a cost of a thousand pounds, which Ooh. back then would have been a shite ton of money. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. We could probably work it it's out. It's nothing actually. to shake a stick at now. <laughs> early, I mean, exactly. Early 1840s. Let's have a look. 1,000 pounds to now that is the equivalent of yeah about a hundred thousand dollars hundred thousand pounds sorry yeah hundred thousand pounds which is more so that is expensive as hell the chamber of horrors also still exists i've been to that it is horrible and it's this sort of like adjoining part of it where that has these grisly horrible recreations of different murder scenes and of like infamous murder scenes and methods of 
torture and things that would happen to like people in the Tower of London and all kinds of shit. And it was like obviously horribly realistic. I remember going in there and then I think my godmother was with, was with us and she was like, nope, <laughs> we're not doing this. <laughs> yeah, I don't like that. It had, oh, that's, I remember that it had a working scale model guillotine and then it had this like really horrible like recreation of Madame Tussauds walking through a battlefield and just like picking up bits of like bodies and stuff. And then it also had the heads of Louis the gosh, who would it be? Louis the ninth? Wait, no. Louis the sixteenth. Oh, Louis the, the one? Da- yeah. No. Louis the sixteenth. Yeah, they, they were laid into it, Louis sixteenth. Marie Antoinette and Robespierre to reflect his like botched suicide attempt where he shot half of his jaw off. It's really gross. <laughs> yeah, and it's That's if rough. you want you don't have to go to the Chamber of Horrors if you go to Madame Tussauds, just letting you know. So, but then there's like some <laughs> because of because of who people are and how we love the morbid. There are all, there's also a part of the Chamber of Horrors that's like British murderers. How fun! So like James Rush, who was executed for the triple murder of his landlord and family, and then Maria and George Manning, who were a couple arrested and executed before fifty thousand people in 1849. Uh, and then to harken back to some of our previous topics, they have the body snatchers William Burke and William Hare. <laughs> sitting in there being themselves just hanging out I have a picture here and it's arguably some of the worst Madame Tussauds wax wax worst I've seen oh hell yeah soz babe but they aren't great but apparently, Mad- uh, Madame Tussauds cast Burke's head three hours after his execution in 1829. So maybe he did just look like that. Oh my gosh, I didn't even know this. William Hare turned King's evidence and escaped the gallows, but was modelled from life by Tussauds' sons, who had by that time joined her in business. Oh, Aww, I didn't even know fun. that. Oh my goodness, hang on. <laughs> so let me, I'm going to try and speed up a little bit here. I didn't realize how much I had left to go. There's so many, <laughs> so many stories. I know. Well, I mean, it's, it's been a, you know, attraction for what would that be? 300 years and change. Oh, a shite ton of time. Yeah. So this is back to the, uh, the reporters, the kind of like some of, again, he just has like the way that it's written is so good that I really wanted to like showcase it. So this is kind of his wrap up of what it felt like to be around these wax statues all the time. And he does call Marie to sort of hustler, which is very funny <laughs> and kind of likens her to PT Barnum in terms of like what he was able to do in the U S in terms of this kind uh-huh. of, to create what we recognize as this modern concept of celebrity, which really wasn't a thing back then. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, so Marie Dussault, she died in 1850 with the credit for England's most popular tourist attraction probably ever. And even the usually grumpy satirical magazine Punch had to admit in these days, no one can be considered properly popular unless he is admitted into the company of Madame Tussauds celebrities in Baker Street. The only way in which a powerful and lasting impression can be made in the public mind is through the medium of wax. So it's like still, a th- I mean, that, well, that was 1850, but I think there is still a thing of like, like, well, if you get a waxwork sculpture, that really means like, it's like the old equivalent of your fucking Twitter blue check. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the old way of being verified. You know what I mean? I see. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's, I've never thought about it like that, but that makes, that rules. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, let me finish off by reading the last part of this article from, okay. uh, from Edward Carey. He says, the figures cast by Tussaud herself have a very different presence than the more recent ones. I stood beside them and studied them very carefully. I was employed, along with 20 others or so, to stop people from touching the waxworks. It was not a very skilled job. Being alone with the waxworks, either at their beginning or end of the day, was always disquieting. You couldn't help feeling a little sorry for them. They were very close to appearing alive, and they often wore their subjects' actual clothes, but in the end, they were only partial personalities. And they seemed to know this and resent it. And then the silence would be broken. In charge the public, pointing hither and thither, standing next to Gandhi and pretending it was actually him, as children, we pretend to give our dolls life, and here's the adult version of it. We stand beside a waxwork of Churchill or Hitler and see how our heights and shapes compare to theirs. We want to know the precise amount of space that Marie Antoinette took up and to know what her head looked like after it was cut off. At its heart, Two Swords isn't about history at all. It's a museum of the human body. It's about it's all about physiognomy, not about what these people achieved, but what they look like, how wonderfully various we are. It was often disturbing to see how real people behaved in front of the wax people. In the end, you had to conclude that the wax people had more dignity. The longer I worked there, the more I studied the original two-sword waxworks and learned of her life. I wanted to write about her, this strange woman, unafraid of viscera. I started writing a novel about
about her 15 years ago and I've only managed to finish it now. I kept being confused by the waxworks. I couldn't get their spirits right. But after abandoning the project and returning to it again and again, I began to see Two Swords Life as the most astounding survivor's tale. The history of a small foreign woman, a little crumb caught up in history. Two Sword, when pronounced correctly, which I guess is Two Saud actually, is uh-huh. a rather soft name that possibly suited her weak husband. I love the fact that the announcement on the tube at Baker Street Station calls out an, an oft-used mispronunciation. A light here for Madame Two Swords. It is somehow more <laughs> fitting. <laughs> she died at the age of 89 in 1850, just as the first stirrings of mass market photography were beginning to emerge. I like to think of it as a deliberate act leaving us before the invention of photography could trap her, and instead she is preserved only in wax. I, and let, <laughs> I have and I have I have one more thing to it. say. Go for it. And she's got something to say. On the 7th of May, 1912, the following was added to the Madame Tussauds collection. An excellent model of Captain Smith, the brave captain of the Titanic, was added to Madame Tussauds exhibition. Mr. John Tussaud has modeled the figure from a daily sketch photograph taken on the Titanic shortly before she started on her fatal voyage. So the Titanic also ties in to the story of Madame Tussaud. Wow. You had to do it to him. I did. You know what? In the first week of our spooky episodes, I did. She did. She had to do it. (laughs) That's powerful. I love the idea. I really liked like the passage that you read because I was thinking about like there is something about like I, I don't know like sharing physical space with with these things that I think is yeah. part of like the lasting allure of like Madame Tussauds. Like even if even as you know, obviously you can see images of these things anytime you want with like your little pocket computer. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's the reason that like you know, for example, like we still like to go to concerts even though like it doesn't sound as good as like what we can now hear at home anytime we want. Yeah. But it's just there is something special about being there in space with someone else that is, you know, hard to quantify. And Madame Tussauds, like, allows you to kind of connect with that through the past, like, through time, mm-hmm. which is, is so cool and spooky. And I do find them to be spooky, to they be clear. They are spooky. And I think that it's, like, it's such a funny thing that is such a piece of pop culture because it has been the most visited attraction in London for so many years. It's, like, we don't get how fucking weird it is until we stop and look at it and be like what are we doing we're walking around like <laughs> like as exact as we can reproductions of someone and it is like I think it was he hit the nail on the head where he's like this isn't really about celebrity it's about bodies it's about being like right. this is a physical person and this is what they look like yeah and I think there is definitely a crumb of that there's a part of that in going to concerts and being like oh my gosh like you know you always hear like he's so much taller in real life or whatever like that is, it is this like fascination that we have because it's something that's so often separates us from these celebrities is like we actually have never seen them and we don't know what they look like really <laughs> that's true um yeah it is always weird to like the few times i have like been up close and personal with somebody you know who uh is on like i've previously only seen on like movie screens is just like yeah. oh yeah like their skin has texture like it's not anything bad right. but no, it's, it's just, just like, like oh things that you like don't associate <laughs> with like this idea of this person like, like their skin has texture and like you know their um like their body takes a physical space and like they have like oil on their nose like I have oil yeah. on my nose or like they're sweating because it's hot like you're just like oh it's a human it's like, being like oh you do human stuff that's so weird yeah. <laughs> whoa whoa um, weird you ready to points let's do points so I'll let's start. points I have put some quite some simple points this week. Number one, love okay. a spooky book. Ten points. Mm-hmm. I know it's good, right? Thank you. And then I put here from one cunning woman to another, another ten points. Oh. <laughs> and then I've written an incredible introduction to being spooky, plus five points. So uh-huh. that's twenty-five. That's a good word. That's a good piece of cheddar. That's strong. Yeah, I'm not complaining. No. Um, <laughs> and why would I? Yeah. So okay. I love that you also were just like that we didn't even have to talk about it that it's just like immediately you're both like let's be spooky it's so a like that's gonna season. be an eight points right off the bat Beautiful. and then I will say um, did I love cockroachy I think we've already discussed no I did not <laughs> uh, so I, I will take away three points for cockroachy but okay. 
I am obviously going to give back another 10 points for just like the sheer, like, I guess sort of like breadth of information that you had about, like, honestly, like I knew what Madame Tussauds was. I don't yeah. think I've been there. I'm trying to remember from like the, when I visited London, I don't think I've been there, but I honestly wouldn't have guessed it would have had that much history. So yeah, dude. that was just sort of like a surprise to me. And it made but me think about it in a new the way. World now. There's one in Hong Kong. I think there's one in New York, Broadway. Mm-hmm. there's there's like they're all over the world it's so wild right so so like just for making me think about it in a different way and think about like so like, like just like the opportunity to sort of like share physical space with like Marie Antoinette mm-hmm. um, like a figure whom I've read like so many books about but like you know obviously otherwise would never be able to share space with it's really fascinating yeah. and then finally begrudgingly I do have to give you eight points for bringing Titanic in because I didn't think it could be done <laughs> eight wow that's that's a high titanic bonus yeah well look i mean we've got to uh we've got to reward you know one of like our um our, our main whenever we can actually get back to what this podcast was supposed to be about which is titanic <laughs> because you know we seem to really we did decide wildly, that of course yeah it's true and this is a titanic podcast so like i feel like i've got to do like the good work like the positive reinforcement for both of us yeah like, oh god titanic's got to be in there well you know what i'm gonna make a prediction here now that somehow Connor comes through and steals this season from both of us. I think that'd be so funny. I was thinking something similar where it's like, if I, I feel like if I tell him, hey, you're in third place with 100 points, then he will come on and be like, oh, and I get 500 points. And I get points. 900 points. Yeah, and I get 900 points. But then it's like, then what would happen? Would he decide on two tattoos for us? Um, I suppose Cause so. Because spooky. That is a little scary, isn't it? Yeah. Well, um, I, I mean, it's you- not as scary as my rock flag and eagle that i want to make for you but you know rock flag and eagle well don't worry exactly. i found like a little a tattoo of like a little medieval man who's also a frog that i was thinking that no! <laughs> could look That's really what I'm good sensitive about <laughs> <laughs> don't bully me with my one and true fear <laughs> oh my god Okay. Right, well, I mean, you're going to have to get to booking some allies because uh, I'm on 1,036. I mean, this is all still because of Patrick's mischief. And you and you are on 998, so... I mean, I'm look, I can, I can close that gap. Oh, I know you can. I know you can. And then Connor is still on 100. And Connor's, uh, Connor's coming in strong in third and 100, so it's perfect. <laughs> 100 points. Okay. <laughs> well, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode of What? Jesse, where can people find you? People can find me at Chelsea Arfush wherever internets are sold. Oh my gosh. And you can find me at Ellie Main on Instagram and Ellie Maney on Twitter. And you can find this podcast at WhatPod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Patreon, and Redbubble. And our website is thosetwogirls.club. And I have a little bit of an announcement. On Friday, the Kickstarter for the show that Christina and I have been working on for a bajillion million years uh, it went live and it is the reason that we were able to like even consider it is that it's a very silly, fun, low budget comedy show. And if you're interested in that, check out the Kickstarter and we would love if you'd be able to help and support us to make it. And even do like a little share. Like do like a little like, a little share. Dude, I spent so long looking for that possum today that wants likes and shares. I know. Oh, <laughs> it's because it's from like a Facebook group that legitimately only has like 70 followers. I don't know how Connor found it. It's, I need, I'll find I it need for you. I need that picture. I'll find it for you. Maybe I just get one like or share. Just one like or share. So have a fantastic week. And also, I don't know, maybe go learn something. And hey, if you're maybe out in a Pennsylvania Dutch area, you might want to keep it <laughs> loose. Keep it tight. Say your prayers at night. And uh, don't fuck with the sixth or seventh books of Moses. Really don't. Don't do that. Yeah, you're probably not going to want to do that.